Will you please take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. This is a passage that usually uh, gets attention only once a year during Palm Sunday. Uh, But prayerfully... And by God's grace, our perspective of what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem will be enlightened by the progression of events that we have seen so far in the Gospel of Mark and what is to follow in the coming weeks. So let's read Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse number 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lord, we... Humbly ask that you add your blessing to the reading of your word, Lord. And Lord, I humbly ask that you would Lord, that you would stand here with me. And take nothing and make it something. Convict the hearts of your people. Draw us into a deeper walk with you. Convict the hearts of unbelievers who might be here today or watching online. And draw them into a genuine faith in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, actions speak louder than words? Everybody's heard that, right? You know, uh, maybe you heard it in a fight with or in disagreement with your spouse at some time, one, you know, one Saturday night or one Thursday morning, or you got into an argument about something. And I, I think I've probably had a few tussles with my wife over the years where she didn't really buy my half hearted apology, and, and she said something like, uh, you know, actions speak louder than words. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm the only sinner here today. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Actions do speak louder than words. 
It's true, and it's exactly what Jesus does here in the opening verses of Mark 11. He lets his actions do the talking. And we're going to see what that means in a few moments as this passage unfolds. Because this passage is very significant. Mark 11, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include what we call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We usually do this, as I said, on Palm Sunday. But in our study, verse by verse of Mark, it's presented itself to us here on the third Sunday of October. And though Jesus never or at least the, the, the objection of the, and the claim of the skeptic or the objection of the unbeliever is that Jesus never outright said the exact words, I am God, or I am the Son of God, or I am the Messiah. But in this pivotal episode, just six days before he is crucified, we find Jesus doing something far more overt, far more explicit than simply making any verbal claim. He is actually acting out the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9, the passage that we read together just minutes ago. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. We read it. That's what he's doing here. In Mark 11... And what we call the triumphal entry of Christ is actually Jesus identifying as the Messiah, to use the parlance of our day. He is identifying as the Messiah. But even with this unmistakable claim to his messianic deity, the Jews still missed Jesus, for the same reason that we miss him today. The same reason we can't seem to understand who he is. And it's because that he doesn't fit our expectations. We have misguided ideas about who he is and what he has come to do in our lives. And we reject him today just like the Jews 2,000 years ago rejected their Messiah and in this passage, Jesus shows us just who he thinks he is and who he claims to be, Lord and King. And friends, that is the Jesus that we have to contend with today. Not a Jesus of our imagination. If your Jesus is not Lord and King, then he is not the Jesus who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So I want us to work through these, these verses together uh, by way of sort of three main headings. And the first is that Jesus comes to us as a sovereign king. He comes to us as a sovereign king. Verse 1, 
Now when they drew near, meaning Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd that was following him, you remember if you were here last Sunday, uh, there was a crowd there in Jericho. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say this, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door in the street. Right? Just as he said. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to, said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? When Jesus also said they would say that, didn't he? Verse 6, And they told, him what Jesus, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now friends, many New Testament scholars and commentators believe that these verses describe a sort of prearranged plan by Jesus with the residents of this village, which was probably what Mark describes here as Bethphage. They say that he had a prearranged plan with these residents to borrow a donkey for his ride into Jerusalem. But I don't know about you. It seems to me that what Mark is describing here is not some prearranged plan but the supernatural knowledge and the, the sovereignty of Christ over every detail of His entry into the holy city. I, I confess, it, it does bother me how so many scholars, so many commentators, so many men with all sorts of initials after their names, many pastors even, seem to go out of their way to find some sort of naturalistic explanation for what plainly reads as a very supernatural event. As if Jesus had went to this village ahead of time and sort of worked out all these details in secret. I don't believe that for one second. Friends, this is it for Jesus. The pinnacle of redemptive history has arrived. He's about to pull back the veil over his identity and reveal himself as the promised Messiah. And he's going to ride into Jerusalem just like the prophet said the Messiah would. And so he says to his disciples, Go get me my donkey. Because he is sovereign over every cosmic square inch of creation. And friends, if he wants a donkey, guess what? It's already his. In fact, this very donkey in, in the year 30 A.D. was alluded to 1,800 years earlier when Jacob, you remember him, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the patriarchs, when Jacob blessed his son Judah, which was the tribe that Jesus descended from. In Genesis 49 verse 10, 
Jacob says this to Judah, his son. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. Think about what we're going to read here in just a few moments about this crowd and what they're doing to Jesus. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the, to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So here, 1,800 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jacob is talking about this donkey. You see, everything in the story arc of the Bible was pointing to this moment in history. You've heard me talk about that scarlet thread that runs all throughout. The sovereign king from the tribe of Judah was about to ride into his city on a donkey that had been predestined and created for that very purpose. Jesus didn't need to prearrange any of this in secret because it was already stamped all over the pages of Scripture. Every detail here, friends, screams the sovereignty of Christ over what's about to take place. The timing, the fact that the disciples found the exact donkey which had never been ridden, tied up just like he said, where he said it would be, the willingness of the villagers to let the donkey go. Why? Because... The Lord has need of it. All of it points to Christ riding into Jerusalem that day as the sovereign king of history. Secondly, Jesus not only comes to us as a sovereign king, he comes to us as a saving king. Saving King, verse 7. And they, the two disciples, that's the they there, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Friends, Jesus is bold here. Actions speak louder than words. He is intentionally acting out Zechariah's prophecy. Receiving the kingly honor, the praise of the crowd that was following him. And this honor and praise was clearly messianic. Look at verse number 9. Those who went before and those who who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He didn't say, stop. Don't talk about me like that. I'm not who you think I am. No. He's 
actions were speaking way louder than any words that he could have said. And what he was saying by his actions was that, yes, I am exactly who you think I am. This same crowd that was with him, following him into Jerusalem, back in Jericho, heard Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, last week, right? You remember this. Bartimaeus said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And now this crowd is welcoming the son of David into the city of David as the promised Davidic king who would save them. That's what the word Hosanna, you can circle that in your Bible, right out to the side, save us now. Save now, O Lord. That's what it means. Save now. Which, by the way, is directly out of Psalm 118. Blake read this morning for our call to worship. One of the Messianic Psalms. Save now. But you know what? This is where we, we might start to feel a little uneasy with that crowd that day. This might where we be where we start feeling a little uneasy with our own hearts. Because you see, they wanted Jesus to be their Savior. This was, they were caught up in the messianic fervor. It's Passover week. They wanted Jesus to be their Savior, not from sin, but from Rome. And just like Moses had delivered the Israelites from Egyptian oppression. Again, remember, they're in Jerusalem. Why? For Passover. Why do we celebrate Passover? As a reminder of God's deliverance from Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so they're feeling this. But they were not in bondage to Egypt anymore. They were in bondage and under the tyranny of Rome. This messianic fervor is is high. And they wanted a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. But that isn't what Jesus came to do, is it? Because if he did, he failed, didn't he? You see, he ultimately didn't meet their expectations. And the crowd that was crying, Save us now on Sunday, Hosanna, was nowhere to be found on Friday when the Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on Calvary's cross doing the saving work. Because they didn't know what they really needed to be saved from. You see, everybody wants to be saved from something, even us today, but very few know what we need to be saved from. And I wonder, friends, how often we may cry out, Save us, O Lord. But we want to be saved on our terms. According to our expectations. Some of you here today may want to be saved from that political disaster down there in Washington. I've got news for you. 
Washington is not your biggest problem. Some of you might want to be saved from a troubled home life. It's not your biggest problem. Your marriage, your children, not your biggest problem. Your parents. Some of you may want to be saved from an unsatisfying career, a bad job, or a load of debt. You know what? Sometimes I, I wish Jesus would just save me from my electric bill. But you know, He didn't come to save us from those things. He came to save us from our sin and the just wrath of His Father against our sin. The abundant life that He promised in John 10.10, you know the verse, the thief comes only but for to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That abundant life is not about material comfort and prosperity. It's about freedom from the guilt and the penalty of our sin. That's the saving king that Jesus came to be. Lastly, and Jesus comes to us as a seeing king. A see, seeing king. Look at verse 11. This is a profound verse. <laughs> and on the surface, it seems very unprofound. Verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As ordinary as this verse seems, it actually holds the key to understanding what's about to unfold over the next several chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Put a star on it. Circle it. Make a note. Jesus has triumphantly arrived in His city. And now, the king goes where? The king goes into His temple. This is the first time that Mark mentions the temple in his gospel. In fact, it's the first of 12 times that Mark will talk about the temple in the remaining chapters of his gospel, five of which are right here in chapter 11. So Mark is setting the stage because, friends, it's about to go down in the temple. It's about to go down. The final showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders of His day. And here in verse 11, after making that 17-mile, mostly uphill journey from Jericho to Jerusalem on foot, it's late Jesus and His disciples are tired, but Mark says that Jesus walks into the temple and looks around. Friends, I wonder if, if His mind traveled back to that time when He was 12 years old 
in the temple. When he'd gotten loose from his parents, you know, he got loose from, from Mary and Joseph, and they were traveling on. And he was back in the temple, 12 years old. They were scared to death. Where's Jesus? frantically looking for him, and he says to them in Luke 2.49, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Twelve years old, and now twenty or so years later, he knows full well that these will be his last trips to his father's house. And so that sacred place that was so central to the life of the people of God would now be central to the death of the Son of God. The temple takes center stage going forward. And Mark frames the next three chapters around three distinct trips to the temple. This being the first. As ordinary as it seems... But it was deceptively ordinary. It was deceptively uneventful. Because what happens here? The king goes into his temple and he looks around. He inspects it to see if it was fulfilling its role in the worship of the living God. But as we're going to see next week, friends, the temple was not fulfilling its role. It was not doing and being used the way it was supposed to be used. And Jesus did not like what he saw, and he had all night to think about it. Look at the end of verse 11. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Whatever he saw in the temple, Mark doesn't tell us yet. He tells us on the next The next passage. What Jesus saw, oh, he had all night to stew over. I remember as a child when I'd get myself into trouble, which was actually quite often. Sometimes my dad, he he worked second shift. He'd get home late. He'd find out what had happened. My mom would tell him. I guess most of the time, I don't know. But he'd, he'd often wait until the next day to deal with me. But don't make no mistake, he would deal with me. And friends, the king is about to deal with a mess going on in the temple. And I don't want to preach too much into next week. But the following day, when he returns from Bethany, the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, I'm going to say it, he's going to rage in holy anger when he gets back to the temple. I wonder, though, what would the seeing king say about our churches today? What would he have to say about us? Now let's make no mistake here today, friends. He sees everything. We've been doing Revelation in Sunday school. He is the one who dwells amidst the lampstands. He dwells among his churches. 
He sees us. He knows us. He knows every single church that bears His name. What would He see? Would He see a compromising church? A worldly church? A materialistic church? Would He see a consumeristic church? A church just wanting to be entertained. Friends, what would he see in this church? Oh, he's walking these aisles this morning looking around. Seeing us. Seeing deeper than the clothes on our skin. He sees into our hearts. He knows what's there. piercing gaze of the sovereign Son of God who knows His church and her people inside and out, what would He see in our lives as individuals, in our homes, in our bedrooms, on our computers? What would He see on our phones? You see, friends, we are the temple now. And what does our King see when He looks around in our lives? Young people, what is He seeing in you? This is the Jesus that we have to contend with. And we're going to see next week that He's not always as gentle and loving as we make Him out to be. He is not indifferent to our corruption, to our sin, to our idolatry. And we need to get our temples ready, friends, because the King is coming soon. And this time, he's not going to be riding on a barred donkey. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it. Same one who sat on the donkey. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and, wait a minute, makes war. (laughs) His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns, many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. You remember what I read from Jacob's blessing on Judah? His garment would be dipped in wine. Oh, this scarlet thread runs from Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven. By God's grace, that's going to be you and me, friends. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he is. That's who rode into Jerusalem that day, friends. That's who's walking these aisles this morning by his, by his Spirit. And one day this sovereign, saving, and seeing king is going to trade his barred donkey for a, a white horse. And we best do business with him now. Before grace is gone. I know I preach this every week. But I don't assume anything about the hearts of anyone in this room. Not myself. I don't even know my own heart. Not my children. Not the eldest saint in here. I assume nothing. If you are here, or if you're watching online, or listening, and there's something not right in your heart, you know it. You may be resisting everything I'm saying. You may be just brushing me off like I'm a fool. But you know something is not right. Jesus is here. He's here. He's in the dark nights, the late nights of our hearts, of our temples. He comes in and He looks around. He sees everything. Friends, I want you to know there is forgiveness and redemption in Him today. If we would turn to Him in repentance and faith, we're going to pray, we're going to sing, and I urge you now to meet with God right where you are. I don't care if we think you're the, the holiest saint in this room. You've been saved for 70 years, but maybe by God's irresistible, effectual grace, He has shown you this morning that you are a professor of faith, but not a possessor of faith. Don't, don't, don't walk away from this moment flee to Christ. Plead His mercy and plead His grace today. Let's pray.